Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You may be seated. Thank you, Joe and Becky. Thanks for all you do to serve us and serve the kingdom. Well, if you're, you know, a Christian, have any non-Christian friends or even, you know, uh, nominally Christian friends, it doesn't take very long to have this notion of the problem of suffering come up. Said even in our prayers this morning, you saw that it kind of uh, really finds its way at every corner if you're a Christian. Say, what is the problem of suffering and why is it such a formidable challenge to those of us who believe? It goes something like this. It says, well, if we see in the Bible that God is all-powerful and that he is the source of all goodness and that he is all good, why do we live in a world with so much pain and suffering? Either God can't do anything about it or he won't do anything about it, so either he's impotent or not that great. So we want to be on this question very careful and accurate, and that's, you know, in the notes, the way that I introduce this, the way that I do, is because thinking accurately and having uh, a framework, because at various times that all of us will suffer to different degrees in this life, and to think accurately about who God is and what we are and the relationship between our sin and our suffering is of great importance. And I think to launch us, there we could do a lot worse than one of the Reformed confessions. So here's the Belgic Confession from the 1560s. Uh, so flowing out of the Reformation, nothing in this world happens without God's appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. Now a surprising turn. This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation. Since we are taught thereby, nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father. In other words, the biblical witness, as distilled in that article of this confession, would say, we know God is in control of everything that happens in this universe. Not that he's responsible for sin, which is entirely our own, but God, when he draws a person to himself, nothing happens to that person outside of his guidance, his provision, and his direction. And he uses those to his ends, to his glory, and for our good. And it's in this, I think, we see the surprising move that I think a lot of people struggle with, that accurate teaching about God is the most practical thing in our lives. 
you know, some people say, well, you know, stop it with all that theology stuff. Or, you know, last thing we need is church dogmatics. You know, just give me the stuff to handle today. Help me to be a bit kind. Say, well, no, accurate thinking about God, who he is, how he operates in the world, what he says about us, flows into something as mundane as whether I have serenity in my life. See, if you don't think God has control and that all of this is happening kind of, you know, by chance or, or worse yet because, you know, you're, you're uh, you know, made a mistake, uh, then you say you're going to be walking around the world very, very nervous, very uncertain, you know, where can I anchor things? Say, no, actually, a big God theology flows into the hearts of his people in a way of peace and consolation and confidence as we go through. Even this week, I was given, gifted a book Theology for Ministry, but the subtitle, How Doctrine Affects Pastoral Life and Practice. Knowing God, thinking rightly about him, flows into our lives as to how we can work it out in our relationships and in our work in every other place. So doctrine of the utmost importance, especially on this matter of suffering and sin. And so it is a great privilege of the church, really. Why do we gather each week? Lots of reasons. But one reason is to always reform one another. So we're always reforming each other back to the accurate teaching of God's word. And so that's what we do afresh today with the help of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 13. Now, some relatively new to church say, why, why Luke 13? Is that a bit random? Well, here's the, the honest reason. We started Luke at Advent 2019. So that's on me, right when I started. So we, you know, we do some gospel, and then we take a break. We'll go to the Old Testament, or we'll do a Pauline epistle, or you know, a series like you know, uh, Minding the Gap, the last six weeks. So the, the, the answer is we, we've done the first chapter, 12 chapters of Luke's gospel. They've just been spread out over about three years. They're on our website. So that's why we've gotten to chapter 12. And I'll just remind you of what we're dealing with here, that Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus. It's interesting that no two people have identical accounts of any third person, so I don't know why people find it so shocking that God would give us four biographies. I mean, take any example. I'm sure if you asked uh, me about my wife and my sons about my wife, they would both esteem her with different virtues, but they would be different accounts nonetheless. So we have four biographies of Jesus, and Luke is a very formidable writer. You say you know this in uh, you know, you know, Greek 101, that Mark's prologue and John's prologue is kind of where you start to learn the language, but not Luke that he's a sophisticated writer, he's a physician, and he pleads with his audience. He says, look, I've taken careful note. I've gathered uh, the resources that I can, and I've talked to the eyewitnesses, and this is an orderly account, so please pay attention because this is very serious. And today's passage is along those lines. It's a, it's a serious passage. And so here's Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem to do the work on the cross. And he confronts another crowd, is the way it's going. The disciples are there, and he confronts another crowd. And this will uh, introduce our topic today. They bring up two what would be current events. Can you see that? So here is Jesus, and the two events that they bring is one that's a certain uh, set of Galileans made their way to Jerusalem to make sacrifices in the temple. And Pilate, yep, that same Pilate, the Roman procur procurator of Judea, uh, doesn't like what they're doing, senses it as a kind of revolt against uh, Rome, and he, he slaughters them as they're there in the temple. That's one current event. 
And the second current event, this unfortunate incident of the Tower of Siloam falling and crushing 18 people. Can you see that in verse 4? So they bring up this uh, tragic accident. We don't know exactly anything about this. Is it a, a construction accident? Is it an earthquake? Is it, uh, you know, bad, bad materials? We don't know. But a very sad thing, 18 people are crushed in an instant. So they bring these two events to Jesus, uh, both instances where no doubt they're suffering. I, I think it's... Um, actually quite insightful that one we could say is deliberate, the act of a strong man, a bloodthirsty strong man. We know that Pilate acted that way from other non-biblical accounts. One deliberate and one accidental. And they bring this to Jesus and say, what do we make of this? What does this suffering have to do with us? And what truths can we gather from uh, such current events? So a couple moves. We'll make just two observations from uh, 13, 1 to 5, and then with that parable, I think, turn to what Jesus is asking his initial followers, which is the same that he's asking of us. So point number one that I think we do well to think about in this matter of sin and suffering in the world in which we occupy, there's a difference between sin and what we could call moral relativity. The difference between sin and moral relativity. What do I mean? Have a look again at verses 2 and 4, that those who bring up these incidents led Jesus to believe that they were thinking in terms of the category of worse sinners. Do you think that these unfortunate Galileans who were slaughtered were worse sinners than you? Or again, very similarly, uh, verse 4, do you think that those on whom the tower fell were worse offenders? Now, anytime we use a word like worse, we use worse often. It's a basic word. Uh, worse requires a standard. Worse requires some kind of, we would call it in philosophy, an, an ontic referent, right? So uh, think of anything. If I say to you, well, I'm a worse tennis player. Say, well, yeah, I'm, I, I am a worse tennis player than many of you in the room, but I, I'm also probably, I might dare to say I'm better than a few. Say, worse requires a standard. And when we have a category like worse sinner, uh, what a lot of people are thinking of, well, if the game is to find somebody in my sphere, you know, somebody in, my, in the local news, somebody in Avon, somebody at work who's more unlikable, who's lived a messier life than I have, if I just find some, then I know he's a worse sinner than me. And I'm okay, but he's in real trouble. But I think here, when I mean that sin, as the Bible would present it, the game, if you will, is not to say, am I worse than my neighbor? That sin is actually the standard. You say, oh, this idea of better and worse sinners. You say, well, the standard actually is the holiness of God himself, right? It's God himself. And that's why scripture would say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think that I find of all the teachings in Christian theology, this is the one that's simultaneously the most obvious and yet the most resisted. It is in every pocket of society at every level. It's in all of our hearts. We even have a saying like, well, you know, I'm not perfect. So yeah, every, everybody agrees to that. There's, there's few that say, I'm aware of a perfect moral standard and I've lived up to it at every point in my life. That deep down in our nature, we're aware of moral standards of how we should conduct our affairs to our neighbor, that we're accountable to God, that we have that deep down inside of ourselves. 
And yet we resist that because if we, get into, if we give into that, which is what the Bible's helping us see, right? If we give into that, then what you say is I'm guilty. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. But that's where Jesus is taking us. Now pivot again. So this idea of a worse sinner and worse offender is how these say, look at this accidents. Are these people worse than, than I am? What would you expect Jesus to say when he's confronted with these two current events? You say, I wonder what we try to do, you know, maybe backpedal a bit, say, well, it's not what it seems. It's not really that bad. Um, well, you know, make some kind of excuse. I mean, I mean, Jesus's response actually is where we get the thrust. He uses the current events of suffering to issue a warning to those who are alive and hearing. Two times, have a look. So take a look at verse three, right? No, I tell you, Jesus says, but unless you, plural, the hearers, unless you turn to God, you all will likewise perish. Verse five says almost the identical thing in regard to the tower. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, Jesus uses the suffering in this world to draw attention to the fact of this in the hearers that the world is not as it ought to be, that my sin is serious business, and that I too one day will face the just judgment of God. You say it's quite a response to sin, and that is the Christian response to sin, that we look at the world in which we live and we have a sense, we say there's a lot of good in the world, there's a lot of good in people, I can see as it ought to be, and when I use that word ought, uh, once again, I'm kind of, I, I think, bringing in metaphysics, bringing in God, but I see the world not as it ought to be, and God, through Jesus, is making it right by calling sinners to himself. He's gonna put all those who are his right, and one day he will put all creation right, and so Jesus, again, uses the instances in this world to help people think more deeply about sin and about, um, and about who God is. Now, I want to pause here and say, this problem of suffering, you always want to take, you know, we all wrestle with this if you're a Christian, say we, we again, prayed about it for people that we dearly love, many in the congregation have suffered, that it's always there. But you, you do well, I think, we do well, to take a step back and say, how do other worldviews, other faith positions, handle the problem of suffering? See, I would go so far as to say the very time, you know, the moment an atheist brings up the problem of suffering, he's already conceded too much ground. You say, well, why is that? Because if you're a materialist, there's no problem at all. Here's what you say. If you're an, I think you challenge me on this, send me a note. If you're an intellectually honest materialist, this is what you say. Those 18 masses of randomly assembled cells were simply at the wrong place at the wrong time and they're just wiped out, get on with it. Pilate was a stronger guy than the other guys and he just won that day. Or maybe, you know, Pilate needed a little more sensitivity training and he was just eight hours short and we can just correct this through our views, you know, that kind of thing. Say no. It's only in the Christian view of things that we have set up the world is not as it ought to be, that it's filled with accidents and rebellion as a consequence of our sin, that in Jesus things are being put right, and in fact, God himself in the person of Jesus has come into the world and suffered on our behalf. It's a more profound 
and more rich answer than you'll find in any other view, because in any other view, there really isn't that much to say. So what, again, is Jesus trying to get us to think about? When I'm in this life and I start thinking in categories of who is a worse sinner than me, I'm asking the wrong question. Jesus always wants me to see my own sin with more seriousness than my neighbor's sin. This is what he means by why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and you don't see the log that's in your own eye? In other words, what he's saying, think about, you're not responsible for what others are. And if you go around and say, well, that, you know, those people are worse than I am, you're gonna be self-righteous. The real question is where am I at before God? And the answer to that is I need God's help that I need a savior and I need, I, I'm dependent upon his grace. So sin is a kind of absolute category. We've all sinned, all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what do I mean by moral relativity? This is not to say that different human choices, uh, you know, too many negatives here, but di different human choices obviously have different consequences. So hypothetically, say I'm down at my buddy Matthias and my buddy Ken's restaurant, Avon Brewing Company, you know, and there I got my chicken wings, but I also have a big wad of gum in my mouth. And you're there as well, and you kind of look, you say, oh, there's a pastor, he's eating his chicken wings, and I take out that big wad of bubble gum, and I look around, nobody's looking, even though there's a perfectly good napkin, and I'm gonna stick that bubble gum on the bottom of Matthias and Ken's table. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, well, you know, that's, the pastor, like, it's not a, not a virtuous thing to do, uh, not a good thing to do. He's not loving his friends. Verse, if you found out that I had, over the last three years, been living a double life and I have a mistress, you'd say both of those things fall short of God's calling on my life, but they certainly have different social ramifications. So what I'm getting at is that sin, yeah, it's a universal category because the game, the, the worse than game is God's holiness. That's not to say God hasn't made us in such a way where different human choices have different ramifications. So sin, Jesus wants us to see our own state before him and to see that the so-called accidents and evil in the world are not a result of God's goodness, of course not, but rather a result of our rebellion, and we're called what to turn to him. So difference between sin and moral relativity. relativity, relativity. So, uh, secondly, <laughs> that's eight weeks off there, right, you see? Uh, getting the rust off. Um, point two, mercifully, God does not fit into petty human formulas. What's the relationship between sin and suffering? You could put it two ways. Does sin always lead to suffering? Does suffering mean that we are especially sinful? So I want to say there, there's a yes and a no in here. Say God, because he made the universe with a moral economy, say in, in a lot of instances, and I think this is credit to his kindness, when I break God's law, I do oftentimes suffer. Uh, if you drink too much, you're gonna have a hangover. You, you go outside of God's boundaries, you have a form of suffering. If you text while you drive, not only do you break the law, but you imperil, you get the idea. There are instances where I, where I act sinfully and there are real sufferings that are entailed. That's a part of God's moral economy. But if that is our complete answer, we actually run a great danger because you see a lot of people's instinct is exactly the way this crowd answered here. Say, well, don't you know that the reason why those people were murdered there uh, in the temple is because they were especially sinful? That the 18 who um, you know, died in the tower, you know, they were really, really bad people. You see, when, when you do that, what happens? That all of a sudden I've cast myself as a, a self 
righteous person, that I once again have relied on my own merits instead of the grace of God. You know, two weeks ago, what is it, three weeks ago in Turkey, and what did I, I, thousands and thousands of Turks died? You know, you say, well, you know, at least I'm not like those Turks. They were especially bad people for God to take them out in an earthquake, but not me, Austin. You know, I was on the other side of the country, and God spared me because I'm such a good guy. See, that's not a good theology. You know, maybe the best part, number of places in the Bible that draw our attention to this, but you know, in John chapter 9, the disciples come across a blind man. You say the disciples ask him, they say, well, Jesus, uh, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, no, this happened to this man so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. Or how about Job's, uh, you know, false comforters, right? Job's false comforters have this kind of false theology. You say, well, Job, this uh, rather righteous man who's suffering immensely, Eliphaz comes to him and says, well, we, we know that this amount of suffering never happens without great iniquity. In other words, the sin equaled the suffering. Now, friends, here's the point. If God dealt that way, say, go back to point number one. If that was the game, that God would make everyone's lives miserable because they are sinners, then all of our lives would be miserable. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If the game is that God will spare me if I'm such a good person, um, I'm not a good person according to his holiness, and I wouldn't be able to stand. Thankfully, mercifully, Psalm 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, God has dealt graciously with sinners and has spared us from what we actually deserve. Now, pause here. Do you see why a false theology of suffering could be so very, very painful to people? Well, don't you know that your child born with that particular disability was the result of what a bad person you are? Uh, don't you know all those inconveniences in your life are really the result of the fact that you're a little bit, you know, you're a worse sinner than the rest of us? That cookie-cutter theology that just equates sin with suffering misunderstands sin, which is universal that we're all guilty, and misunderstands the fact that God has dealt graciously with sinners. Friends, terrible things happen to real Christians there are real Christ followers in this room and, and hard things, real suffering has come your way. And I do pray that in the midst of that suffering that you would say with scripture to say God uh, ordains all things that he's called me to himself, that he uses those for his formative purposes and that like that blind man in John 9, that as I endure the sufferings for the time that I had, that the glory of God might be put on display in my life. Mercifully, God does not fit into petty human formulas. So one... We're all sinners who need God's grace. That doesn't mean there aren't real choices with real ramifications. Secondly, God does not fit into the petty cookie-cutter formulas, and if we do that to one another, we're going to ask, you know, we're going to really hurt each other instead of uh, base it on the facts, which is we're all sinners and we're all recipients, those of us who are believers of God's grace. So now we get to say, well, what does God want? What does God want from these first followers 
and from us. And I think that answer comes in this word, this idea of repentance, verse three and verse five, that we should all, whoever can hear these words, whoever is among the living, looking at the world in which we live, a, a world in which there is hardship and suffering and tragedy, and to hear the words of Jesus and to turn to him afresh. And we get a wonderful illustration of that in verses six to nine, the parable of the, of the barren fig tree. If you may, I'll just tell it over quickly. There are kind of three characters, to put it that way, this. There's the owner of the fig tree farm, there is the vine dresser, and then there's the fig tree itself. And what happens is the owner of the land is marching through his fig trees one day, and he notices this one three-year-old fig tree, and this three-year-old fig tree has not yielded a single fig in three seasons. And the owner looks to the vine dresser and he says, you know, this is a useless tree. It's taking up space. I've given it life and I've given it space. Yank it out. And the vine dresser basically says, please, let's give it one more chance. I'll pay, I'll pay special attention to this particular fig tree. I'll cut around it. I'm going to even add some fertilizer to it. Please, just, just give it one more chance to produce. I'll pay careful attention. Make sure that nothing is lost. And only then, after a fourth season, then may you cut it down. What's the point of this parable? You say, well, I think the owner is God who's endowed every person with life. He's given us a wonderful place to live in his cosmos. He's given us bodies that we are without excuse from identifying a maker, that he's put us in America of all places where there's loads of churches and a rich Christian history that we are again without excuse. Friends, there are not, if you will, an infinite amount of chances to repent that there will be a time when it's too late to turn to what God has done in Jesus, that we ought not delay. And I fear that some even here at this very hour are in that mindset. They say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to go today. And, you know, when I, or, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to do what I always do and just negotiate my way out of things. It's not that serious. My sin is really just a matter of moral relativity. Say, no, that the point of the parable is to say, today, turn to Jesus. Can't you see that we're here? We're to produce fruit, that our lives are short, that he's calling us to turn to him. That's what repent means. It means to turn unto Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And I pray today, if you're not a Christian, you've been coming maybe Providence a long time, you say, well, I come here, but I don't believe a word of what this says. Say today, but don't delay. To see your need for Jesus in this crazy world, to say, do you think that the 18, you know, they went off to work on the Siloam Tower and they, they said, well, today's gonna be my day. So they had no idea it was gonna be. Do you think those who were doing their routines of doing the sacrifices at the temple knew they were gonna? No, do, do any of us know? No, so what, what's the call? Turn unto Jesus as Savior and Lord and someone totally different. You say, well, why? Look at the, the rates of where our country's going. Say, so can we see what cuts through is the greatest personage whoever walked the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that no one who hears Luke 13 today, Christian or non-Christian, would not leave this place without a renewed faith, a real deep faith in the Lord Jesus and a real prayer that he would use our lives to produce fruit for his kingdom so that even one might be one to a saving knowledge and to get that great inheritance in glory. So friends, I'll pray and we'll sing our final hymn. Lord, this is a hard-hitting passage, sin and suffering. 
Help us to see the reality of sin and suffering in this world, not as an illusion, not as a matter of chance, not as a, just a, you know, however we might dismiss this, but rather as a way of seeing the entire ordering of your world, that you made it good. We've said no thanks. We've done our own thing. And that when we see suffering, that the real attitude should be, well, what about my sin and how have I contributed to this mess? I need your help. Thank you for providing the Lord Jesus, for putting him into the sinful mess to rescue sinners out. Lord, we recognize that we are recipients of your mercy. Help us not default to cookie-cutter theologies, but rather to see that you have dealt graciously with sinners and that you call all people to a repentance to your terms, which is putting Jesus of Nazareth, your son, into history on display. So, Lord, may we turn to him afresh. May you allow our lives to bear fruit in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our places of work so that Jesus might be maximally, maximally glorified in our church through your people. Amen.